I'm B.C. Williams. You're listening to Health 2049. I think in an ideal world, it would fit into the flow of my life uh, rather than having us make uh, adjustments to, to even figure out, let alone, you know, adapt to the what the system is providing. Welcome to Health 2049. My name is Jason Helgerson. And I'm BC Williams. And together we're launching a podcast about the future of health and healthcare. Health 2049 is about ideas. Our goal is to inspire, to encourage others to see the future, not with dread or rose-colored glasses, but as a design challenge that must be taken up by all of us. We ask each of our guests to describe what they hope health and healthcare will look like in the year 2049. That's right, Jason. And by looking 30 years in the future, we give them license to dream. That said, we don't have time for Pollyannas. Or pessimists. We want their vision to be rooted in science and the art of the possible. We're also committed to diversity. We want to give people from around the world and many different backgrounds the opportunity to tell us their vision for what's possible. So join us in leaving the present behind. And embracing an amazing and beautiful future. Imagine what access to higher education and, by extension, health and well-being could look like by designing the tensions between broad accessibility and academic success. Our guest today is charged with doing exactly that. Meet Sean Hobson, Assistant Vice President and Chief Design Officer for EdPlus at Arizona State University, where he leads strategic design initiatives to solve complex challenges in higher education. As ASU's first Chief Design Officer, Sean believes design is at the core of driving meaningful innovation. This week, we challenge Sean to think creatively about the state of health and well-being in 2049. Welcome to Health 2049, Sean. Thank you, BC. It's my pleasure to be here. We're happy to have you. So what changes will there be within how healthcare is delivered and received in the future? It's, it's such an interesting question. And, and to be honest, one that I've been laboring on a little bit since we, we talked about having this discussion. There's an optimistic future, uh, but then, you know, I think there's, there's some challenges too, some, some big ones. You have big, very comfortable systems and cultures and, and disrupting those are, are, are very, very challenging. But I think, I think it's, it's perhaps quite basic and, and getting back to, to first principles. Uh, and, and when I think about what first principles are, uh, I think about a, a, a much more personalized model. And so as with education, when I think about personalized, I think about providing the right care for the right individual uh, at the right time. And, and so while that might seem like a, a basic principle and a first statement, you wouldn't have to look far to see contradictions uh, towards that. It's a very patient-centered model and one where the interventions are as simple, transparent, and hopefully invisible uh, to the patient. Because I think the, the outcomes uh, for the patient, it's not you know, going to the doctor, it's not getting this, uh, this type of care. They're most likely uh, life outcomes 
Um, things like happiness, uh, feeling healthy, being productive, uh, living longer, uh, performing better. Uh, those are those are the outcomes of, of healthcare, at least in my perhaps naive estimation. And so, making some of the the care uh, transparent uh, in the process, uh, I think would be would be a, a tremendous uh, type of evolution. So, tell me how you would make the care transparent. You know, a, a transparent experience for my nine-year-old daughter is, is different for me than it is uh, from my parents. And so when I think about, and it's hard not to think about, the experience that all three of us have gone through in trying to understand COVID, uh, understand the risks, understand and get access to the appropriate care, and the logistics around all of those things, including what we're dealing with around getting access to uh, the vaccine. We each have uh, different experiences in that process. And the process is anything but transparent. I think in an ideal world, it would fit into uh, the flow of my life uh, rather than having us make uh, adjustments to, to even figure out, let alone you know, adapt to the what the system is providing. And so I think it all starts for me around education, helping people understand complex topics. The more connected we are, the more messages we we get, the more confusing it all becomes. And I think when you have a state of confusion and there's this feeling uh, that you get around being vulnerable, being unprepared, uh, not knowing, uh, what to do. You know, I think that's, that's a big part of it. One thing that's, that's attracted me to education is that, um, and, and healthcare for that matter, I think has a similar type of position that most problems have education at the core, uh, in terms of thinking about solutions. I love that. What are the parallels between healthcare and education in your opinion, Sean? I think they are, there are many. Uh, when you think about healthcare and education as, as systems, they have many of the same actors, and then they have many of the same bureaucracies and challenges. Uh, there's, there's localized challenges, there's national challenges, there's different stakeholders. Um, but I think when I think about the similarities uh, it's, it's also this notion that there's a service framework, uh, whether it be the patient or the student, they're ultimately uh, who should be uh, at the center uh, of the design. I think that's interesting, Sean. And I think one of the things I'd like for you to paint a picture, tell us how you revolutionized higher learning online with your work at ASU. Sure. Uh, happy to. Everything that we do with respect to online and, and digital education uh, works backwards from our charter. In essence, it's, it's that ASU aspires to be measured by who we include and not by who we exclude. Uh, reaching learners where they are and, and finding a way to serve learners who otherwise might not be able to participate in a traditional residential model and so we've been working through EdPlus and through ASU Online uh, for the last 15 years or so in earnest to design uh, solutions 
uh, in service of those learners. I'd like you to just tell us a little bit more. I mean, when you started 15 years ago, online learning wasn't really a thing, and it was an afterthought. Tell us what is the difference, or what is the Arizona State University difference, and what directly did you do to make online learning more effective? I think the the biggest difference is that uh, there's no difference at all, if that makes sense. (laughs) And so... (laughs) Online is just a different modality for us. We believe that the outcomes and the quality are exactly the same. We use our same faculty uh, that teach our residential experience. We deploy latest tools and instructional design theories and pedagogies. And so part of what we set out to do is really work on the culture of the institution. And so for each professor that goes through the experience of designing an online course and going through that change process uh, that occurs when you go from teaching a lecture model to an online course and working backwards from the needs of an online student, then there's, there's change that happens. You know, when you do that over and over again, you start to really affect the culture of the institution. And once uh, our faculty began to really adopt the model and believe in what's possible and see it not as a, a different methodology and in, in quality, but as a simply a different modality, then anything is possible. And, and so once we established that culture early on, that's what has led to our, our ability to scale and succeed. I love that, that you built the culture. When you had the mandate to build online learning, you know, 15 years ago, you did so with design and intention. You needed to go and find the people, first of all, who weren't knocking on your door. And then you needed to invite them and inform them that there's a whole world waiting for them. And you're scaling. I mean, you started with how many students and how many students do you have today? So we started with about 400 students in four degree programs. This year, uh, we'll serve somewhere in the order of 70,000 students across 200 or so degree programs and certificates. And and just to, to clarify, these are ASU online students. And so these are students that will start and, and finish their entire degree without coming uh, to campus, except for graduation. Uh, and so, you know, that's been tremendous growth, 20% year over year. So when you think about that model... And you think about 20% growth year over year, and, and you translate that to healthcare. First of all, you changed the culture. You made sure that your online wasn't less than, right? It was equal to. Can you imagine the interface, right, of healthcare delivery, trusted networks, uh, learning for general citizens to figure out how to get the care that they need, when they need it, and how they need it. Do you think that's translatable and scalable to have a fantastic digital medical experience, given the tools we have? It's a great question. And even though we've we've achieved some success there, it's nowhere close to what we need in terms of scale. And I think you have that same type of challenge with healthcare. If you look at the complexity and the size of the problem, even our open access model, our online model, is still not available to everybody. And so we have we have a very great model for 
for a subset of, of the population. But we need to be also building models uh, that scale in the millions, in the tens of millions. And I think healthcare has that same type of challenge. And in, in some cases, when you look at the coronavirus, for example, the, the urgency uh, is even more, even more prevalent. And so when, when a platform like YouTube, for example, has more than 2 billion uh, users a month and 90% of them are there to learn something, you know, that's the type of scaled platform that we need to be developing solutions uh, with and, and for. And, and healthcare needs some of those same things. You know, one thing I, I was thinking about and where might scaled healthcare uh, be happening right now. It occurred to me that the biggest provider of, of healthcare isn't the doctor or the nurse uh, or the surgeon. It's what happens in the home. So it's the mother, it's the caregiver. And this is this is around the world. And so I haven't seen too many solutions that put the mother at the center of, of healthcare design. I love that. So here's a question, and let's think about the mother at the center of care. As technical developments increasingly drive social change, how can democratic societies empower ordinary people, or in this case, parents, mothers, and fathers, to have a say in the decisions that shape the technological pathways that will in turn determine what the future looks like? You know, we are in a very interesting and amazing time with respect to advancements in technology. I think we're also in a amazing time with respect to, to agency. Uh, so, so any individual can, can have a voice and can have a pathway to making, making something incredible. Education, again, is at the, at the center of that. Uh, I think too often technology solutions are developed in, in a bit of a Silicon Valley vacuum or Ivy League vacuum. I think we, we do need to get more diversity in the design process. And I think when you start to do that in the democratic process uh, you, you outline, I think you get more inclusive uh, solutions that may not have some of the profit motivations uh, that we see in some of our scaled technology platforms, but social ones. It's going to be uh, an increasing set of urgencies around how new technology companies are, are created and funded, uh, that they have a social impact agenda uh, at the core of their, uh, of their mission. You know, Sean, I think that's interesting too. I have another question for you along those lines in that a while ago you'd mentioned that sometimes while the innovations and technologies are a boon to a few, sometimes the problems that we mean to solve create other ones. Yeah, I, you know, I think we often look to technology uh, to, to solve problems. And in many respects, it, it can, but it also can leave a lot of people out. You know, when I think about uh, the sign-up process uh, to get my, my parents signed up to take a, a COVID vaccine, you know, that little innovation on one hand that provides anybody in the state of Arizona a, a web form and openings and places to go and general information is also perhaps leaving out some of its most urgent users 
those who may not have the technical literacy or the access to a computer to sign up. You know, that's an example of a conflict in the design process. I think it, and I'm kind of trained this way to work backwards, you know, to, to approach some of these, these big challenges from, from backwards to design. And so, you know, I, I, I find myself wanting to ask what this, this kind of desired state in, in 2049 is. Um, and, and both from a, uh, a process standpoint in terms of what these interventions look like, but also like what is the, um, what is the desired outcome for the patient? I love that. Can you expand on that more? Sure. And, and so, and again, everybody's going to have their, their unique definition here. But for me, the Holy grail is, is happiness for some, it might be longevity. Uh, but if you live for, to be 120, but you're miserable, you know, what, what's the point? You know, I think the way to get there is to have a, a personalized healthcare plan or a personalized happiness plan. You know, I, I can assemble that and I can tweak it and I can build it myself because I've, you know, developed the, the skills to do that. So tell me about your personalized happy plan. Mm-hmm. I think it's a thing that you check in on, uh, whether it's every day, every week. When you think about your five-year trajectory, um, there's a lot of things going on in the world. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of things going on in, in the daily life of somebody who's juggling a career, juggling all the, the messages. You know, I think you got to take stock in, in where you are. Well, I have a question. So how do you measure it? Do you write it down? Do you paint it? Do you record it? How do you actually keep your data point for your happiness on a daily, weekly, monthly? For me, uh, it's more of an intrinsic thing. I ask myself, how am I doing? I might talk to my wife about it. I might observe uh, how my kids are doing and and notice that uh, my happiness could be a reflection on them and how they're doing. Uh, I look at my, my job, my career, am I doing work uh, that, that's meaningful uh, to me? Because I know that's, uh, that's an important trigger for my, uh, for my happiness. And look, this is a constant struggle. You know, it's not that, you know, I have some sort of secret happiness algorithm here. It's just, you know, that's my, uh, that's my long-term objective. And so I think uh, it, it starts with uh, perhaps looking internally about what those objectives are and then putting, uh, putting together designs and plans to, to test and achieve them. I love what you said about algorithms and test and achieve, right? And I want to take this sort of intrinsic analog notion and marry it with other tools that we have. And when you talk about personalized care, so can you imagine in this future state, like how the public and you, so going from the micro to the macro, would have meaningful input? Can you imagine this as a tool? Well, I think, I think we have some of those tools, uh, but I think the user lacks agency in the process. So when I look at some of the technology platforms that we have out there now, whether it's Facebook, Google, Twitter, or others, they understand a lot about me. Uh, they understand my behaviors. They understand uh, 
my likes, my interests. They understand all these things. And and sure, I can go into the settings and I can probably change how much of that I share. But part of me is like okay with it because maybe they're showing me things that might be useful to me or exciting to me. And and so I think first understanding that is, is part of it so that I know when I buy something based on a behavior on a particular platform, I know the consequences of that and, and I got to be comfortable with it. But I think there has to be more of an intentional and transparent and, and simplified process that allows the the end user to to personalize it to, to their benefit, not necessarily the benefit of the platform uh, itself. I think that's a, an interesting perspective. And so understanding that the world is complex, that things are uncertain, when you think about access to information and critical thinking, how do you imagine you could imbue it at the early stage, middle stage, and end stages of life. What does that look like for you? You know, my thinking on this is is very much inspired by Sir Ken Robinson, uh, who's a amazing educator and author. And you know, he he proposes, and and I believe that learning is a a natural human uh, ability. As children, we have this thirst uh, for learning. And we see it as fun. And, and, and we do this in early childhood through kindergarten and, and others. And then for, for various reasons, whether it's structures we've built or individual interactions we have, some of us, some of us lose it. And then we need to find our, our way back. I think it's, it's part of how the, the, the system is, is designed. But it's also part of, a, and, and you could call it a care plan. And in terms of how you think about getting back to some of those those natural instincts or tendencies uh, that you have as a as a child uh, around learning, I love that. Given your purview as a technologist, as a teacher, and a designer, what, in your opinion, should we not be pursuing in terms of health and education? I think there's a real risk in choosing in deploying technology uh, for technology's sake. Uh, technology isn't typically the outcome. It's, it's the tool uh, and, and the mechanism and the vehicle to support the outcome. So, so clarity around that, I think, is, is really, really important. And, and so I think the appropriate design, development, deployment of technology in support of inclusive and responsible outcomes is, is, is kind of really the, the way to think about uh, some of the, the evolution that's going to be happening. Thank you so much. It's good to have you, Sean. Thanks for having me, BC. So that concludes our program today of Health 2049 with Sean Hobson, Chief Design Officer of EdPlus at Arizona State University. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe or share with a friend. And until next time, I'm BC Williams.